Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome back to Superhumanize, where we deal with all things optimizing your life, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Today, we venture deep into the mysteries of longevity and are honored to host a conversation with Dr. Stephen Austed, a pioneer in the field of aging research, whose life story reads like an adventure novel. Dr. Austed's journey is as fascinating as his research, from an English literature graduate at UCLA to a taxi driver and a wild animal trainer for TV and film, to getting a PhD in biological sciences from Purdue University and becoming a globetrotting scientist, studying the world's most fascinating creatures, his eclectic background has not only shaped his perspectives, but also his approach to aging research. His books, including Why We Age and Methuselah's Zoo, have reached audiences worldwide, translating the complex science of aging into compelling stories and very accessible insights. His groundbreaking work not only uncovers the secrets behind the longevity of species like the opossum and shark, but also how these findings can shed light on our human path to a healthier, longer life. In our conversation, Stephen shares insights from his latest explorations in the field of aging, looking at the science of why we age and how studying animals from all corners of the earth, from the depths of the oceans to the highest skies, has revealed nature's hidden blueprints for longevity. But it's not just about living longer. It's about living better. Stephen's research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and his role in shaping the future of aging research shows us the possibilities of extending our health span, ensuring that our years are full of vitality. And this is right up our alley here at the Superhumanized podcast, where we strive to elevate human potential and explore the frontiers of becoming superhuman. Stephen, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. It is really a pleasure to connect with you today. Thank you for making time. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. We just briefly mentioned that before I hit record, you have a really intriguing and I think also quite unusual story, especially looking at the trajectory scientifically that you've had. Could you share with our audience a little bit of your backstory and all of the fascinating things that you were involved in before you actually started to focus on the biology of aging? Yeah, so I got interested in science after I had already graduated from college. I had a degree in English literature, but I, by accident, ended up as a lion trainer for the movie business in Hollywood. And that awakened an interest that I'd really always had in animals and how they behave and what they did. And that convinced me after a while that rather than continue to work in Hollywood, which I loved being around the animals for the first six or eight months that I did. I never took a day off. I never wanted a day off. I couldn't get enough of being around the animals, but I didn't enjoy the being the, the movie business uh, nearly as much as that. And and uh, I, I thought I'd rather than do continue to do this applied animal behavior that I, maybe I should go to graduate school and study uh, animal behavior more formally. So I applied to a number of schools. My intention was to study lions in the wild since I knew so much 
uh, about their behavior in captivity. Uh, but for one reason or another, that didn't work out. And what I ended up doing my PhD thesis on was something totally unrelated, but not really. Because when I worked in Hollywood, I worked for a producer whose goal was to have about 25 lions that he could work together, that he could have in the same area. And they wouldn't fight. They wouldn't kill each other. And I spent a lot of my time trying to prevent lions from fighting with one another. And my PhD thesis, as it turns out, was actually about trying to understand animal combat. It was when do animals fight? When do they just display? And then one or the other backs down. And what determines those things? And so I evaluated some game theoretical interpretations of animal combat. So that was in the same realm that I'd started off, but I never believed that I would be studying aging until I was in Venezuela and I was working on a project on bird behavior. And a friend came up to me and said, I'm having all kinds of problems with my study. He was trying to study foxes and he couldn't catch enough foxes because his traps kept getting filled up by opossums. And so I said, ah, you're studying the wrong thing. You should be studying opossums. And he said, wow, what can we do with opossums? And so we put our heads together. We came up with some ideas. We wrote a grant. The grant got funded. And I started this opossum study. Again, it has nothing to do with aging yet. What I discovered, because to do this study, I had to go out once a month. I would catch every opossum in the study because they had radio collars on so I could find them. And I would examine them. And if they were all females, I would look in the pouch because they're marsupials at their young and I would count the young. And what I discovered that really has stayed with me ever since is that opossums age as quickly as mice. And that was such an astonishing discovery. I thought I knew animals pretty well. Uh, I'd had pets growing up always. I'd done my PhD in animal behavior. And here I'm finding an animal that I expected to live probably a decade to a decade and a half that's really old and decrepit in 18 months. Sort of shocking discovery intrigued me and continues to intrigue me to this day. And I started thinking about why do we age anyway? There's no physical law that I know that says we have to age. So why do we age? And then again, assuming that for some reason we have to age, why do some things age very quickly like mice and other things age quite slowly like people? And those are the questions that's motivated my research ever since. In fact, I would say for the first 10 to 15 years that I studied aging, it was these issues, these paradoxes that I couldn't understand that really uh, intrigued me. And I never thought about human applications. I act slow, I guess, on, on the uptake. Then after a while, I thought, wow, understanding all of these things could potentially allow humans to find ways to age more slowly. Maybe I ought to start thinking about that rather than these the sort of grand evolutionary issues. So since then, I've really focused on trying to understand the processes of aging and how we could potentially uh, treat it as if it were a disease. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you are uh, actually being very humble. You are renowned worldwide for the work uh, that you have done, that you are doing um, for the uh, regular audience members who may not be too scientifically inclined and not be able to read all of the papers you have published. Uh, you have also published two most excellent books. Uh, your first one, Why We Age, 
which I think really you were ahead of the times back then with this book and your most recent book, which you published last year, Methuselah's Zoo, What Nature Can Teach Us About Living Longer and Healthier Lives. And you just mentioned it, this question that has driven you, why do we age? Why do animals and human age, humans age? Now, of course, this is a huge, super complex question. And I'm cert most certain there, I know there's not just one answer, but is there something that has kept popping up throughout the different animals that you've studied, the different, the different things you have researched and looked into? Yeah. So that if I could give a, a, a a general answer about why we age. And it comes straight out of evolutionary biology. And the idea is that natural selection doesn't care about how long we live. It cares about how many offspring we leave. And the ones, the individuals within a population that leave the most offspring, their genes are going to spread in the population. And because it's inevitable that things will die, even if they don't age, even if we didn't age, we'd die eventually, we'd get hit by a car, or falling safe, or something would happen. And what that means is that there's a length of time that even without aging, we couldn't expect to live beyond. And so nature does, so the idea is to reproduce now, reproduce as fast as you can produce high quality offspring. Nature will basically not care about you once your chances of continuing to reproduce have fallen to close to zero. And yeah, nature doesn't care about how long. And what that means is that if we have any new mutations that appear in our genome that appear late in life, that occur at any time in life, but don't have any negative effects until late in life, those are blind to natural selection. Natural selection can't really get rid of those. And so those can accumulate in the genome. And so we have all these genes in our genome that we now have identified, some of them, that basically are not good for our health, but they're not bad for our health when we're young. Mm. And so there's no selection against them so they can accumulate. The other thing that's happened, though, is if we get a new mutation and it happens to have a early life benefit, natural selection is very strong early in life, gets progressively weaker, then even if it has a negative consequence later in life, that gene is going to be positively selected for. And it's remarkable because it's one of the most broad patterns that we can see now that we know how to manipulate aging, how to slow aging in a whole bunch of different animals, is that whenever we do that, we're also tinkering with the reproductive schedule. There's this trade-off. But what that suggests, though, is that there are likely to be many ways of living a long life, just as there are many ways of living a short life. And I think in putting together Methuselah Zoo, where it was looking at one after the other species that lives a very long time, it became very clear to me that there are multiple answers to this conundrum of why people live a long or why animals some animals live a long time. And I think that's very encouraging news because it means there's many possibilities for ways to tweak our own bodies that might help us stay young a bit longer. Yes, Stephen. And in uh, Methuselah's zoo, you actually go into detail about quite a few of these animals. And there's mind-blowing numbers, and I was not aware of this previously, but I think it's the tube worm, for example, that can live millennia. 
or we yeah. have certain types of whales that can live a couple hundred years or a certain shark that can live, we assume at present, up to 400 years. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the most interesting animals that you have looked into, whether they're extremely long-lived or very short-lived, and also what you have learned from these discoveries? Sure. First of all, there, there's, as I say, there are a number of ways to be long alive, but there's one that pops up again and again and again, and that's to be long alive by having a very low metabolism. So the Greenland shark, as you say, can live up to perhaps 400 years, but it also takes 150 years to become reproductively mature. So that's a long adolescence. It has lived that long by living very slowly. Greenland sharks actually do not swim any faster than an average 80-year-old can walk. In fact, they swim slower than that, which raises the question, how do they, they're a shark, right? So they eat meat. How do they ever catch anything? And we don't really know, but we know from looking at their stomach contents that they eat seals and, and a number of things. I think that they move so slowly that they actually can sneak up on things that are asleep in the water. Their heart rate is about five beats a minute. Like I say, they, they are very slow at everything. So that's a long life, but it's a, a long life in a way that may not be so interesting to people because we don't want to live a long time by living a very slow life. The, the animals that are the most interesting to me are the animals that live a long time despite having a high metabolic rate. That is, so the processes of life are fundamentally damaging. Breathing oxygen and eating food and chemically combining that to rip apart the chemical bonds in the food to give us energy, all of that, I call, it's the fire of life. The very famous physiology called it the fire of life. The chemistry of life is really the chemistry of fire. It just happens in a very slow, controlled way. So fire, you have oxygen and you have some sort of fuel like wood, and those are combined under heat and you get energy from that. and you But you also get some byproducts. You get some byproducts that you didn't necessarily want. You get sparks, you get soot, you get smoke. Same thing happens in your body. Some of the byproducts we get are oxygen radicals. Other byproducts that we get are things that damage our proteins, things that make our proteins clump together. Our DNA is damaged at such a rate, we produce about 2,000 miles of new DNA every four or five seconds. And that's being damaged almost as soon as it's being produced. So we have this tremendous ability to repair that damage. Unbelievably good ability to repair that damage. And that's really what determines how long we live. It's, it's how fast the damage occurs. And it occurs faster, the faster the metabolism. And how well we repair it. And that's something that nature's put. There are over 100 genes in your body that are associated with only repairing DNA. That's all they do. So the animals that are the most interesting to me are the ones that have these very effective repair capacities. Mm -hmm. Some of the animals that we know this is true of are large whales, because another thing that makes you aging resistant is being large. And that's not obvious why that should be. Being large by an overall is associated with having a lower metabolic rate. 
a, a, a whale's metabolic rate way less than a mouse's or a horse's. But the other thing is that if you're big, you have a lot of cells. Yeah, so oh, 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 an elephant has hundreds of times as many cells as a person does. Every cell in your body can potentially transform and become a cancer cell and end up killing you. So if you have hundreds of times as many cells as a, you have to have very good protective mechanisms against cancer. Some animals, we know how they do it. And if you're a mouse, of course, then you don't have to have such good cancer prevention mechanisms. And when we take mice out of the wild, where they live three or four months and up to a year at the most, bring them into the laboratory where they live two or three years, they almost all die of cancer. Mm. It's just, they've outlived their warranty, so to speak. Now we're outliving our warranty these days too, right? In the last hundred years or so, our life expectancy has increased by more than 30 years. And so we're now facing many problems of aging that never used to be a, a, such an issue. Before, Alzheimer's disease wasn't really discovered until the 20th century. It wasn't even listed as, a, as an official cause of death by the CDC. But we're living so much longer now. When I teach in an aging class, I will ask my students, how many people know a, a friend or a relative that, that has had Alzheimer's disease? And now everybody raises their hand, right? used to not be that common because it was less common for people to live that long. So we want to really know how to do things better than we already do. But mm -hmm. here's the thing, and this is the subtext of Methuselah Zoo. Most of our biomedical research is performed on animals that are substantially failing at resisting the aging processes. They fall apart quickly. They're mice. They fall apart in a couple of years or they're fruit flies. They fall apart in a couple of months, right? The idea behind this is if we can use these to identify fundamental aging processes and we learn how to tweak them, we can maybe make humans live longer and stay healthy longer. But to me, that's a non sequitur. The way I think about it is let's imagine I want to teach a child how to do a cartwheel. There's certain ways that you would train the child to try to do a cartwheel. And a mouse is a child trying to do a cartwheel. On the other hand, if I'm uh, an Olympic gymnast and I'm trying to improve my cartwheels, I will take a very different kind of training in order to do that. And I think that we're caught in this conundrum. We've spent all this time and all this money on these very short live laboratory organisms Assuming that if we can make them a little bit healthier and live a little bit longer, that will translate into something that will make us, and we're the Olympic gymnasts of longevity. We're the longest lived mammal that doesn't live in the ocean. There's a fundamental flaw in the way we think about aging research. And I think that what we need to do, one of my favorite quotes is by a biochemist, Leslie Orgel, who said, basically, nature's smarter than we are. I think, he's, I think he's exactly right. Nature has had billions of years, billions of species to try to come up with resistance mechanisms to these fundamental aging processes. And it's done it. It's, it's done some incredible things, but we haven't really taken advantage of animals that do it better than we do. Elephants, let's just talk about elephants. Elephants live to a first approximation as long as we do. Okay, if you look at how long elephants in the wild live, how long 
hunter-gatherer humans live, they're pretty close. But because they're so big, they got to have much better cancer, anti-cancer mechanisms. And in fact, we know how they do it. It turns out that one of the genes that we have is a gene that kills cancerous cells, TP, TP53. doesn't matter what it's called, but we have a gene. It's called the guardian of the genome. And most cancers that we get, it's when mutations have occurred in that gene, so it's no longer doing its job. So we have all these, we have 40 trillion cells in our body, and over time, they will accumulate mutations, which are just DNA damage, didn't get repaired properly. And But it turns out that elephants, 20 copies of that gene, not just one. So if one gets damaged and is no longer effective, there are 19 others. Now, that's not likely to translate into something that's going to help us directly. But it's but there are other things. There are naked mole rats that are the size of a mouse. And instead of living two or three years, 30 to 40 years, they also get almost no cancer. How do they do it? We're just starting to focus in on that. But it looks like they're producing this high molecular weight hyaluronin, a certain kind of lubricant that's in our skin and all of our organs, that seems to be something that does the job like the TP53 does, that stops damaged cells from spreading out of control. There's another animal called a blind mole rat, which is not a close relative of the naked mole rat. It's also very cancer resistant, and it has a yet a different mechanism that we're learning about. So some of these are going to turn out to be therapeutic for us. But it's, we already use nature a lot. Virtually all of our chemotherapeutic agents for cancer came from natural products originally. In the aging business, we seem to have forgotten a lot about using nature to try to give us clues to how to proceed. Those are a couple of animals. Uh, one that I do like to talk about, though, is the, the ocean quahog. This is one that I've worked on quite a bit. It lives over 500 years. It might be interesting how I came across this because, as you say, I'm known as the person that studies the unusual animals and tries to learn about aging from them. About a decade ago, I got a call from some um, oceanographers. We study clams and they live a really long time. Would you like to collaborate and see if we can figure out how they do it? And I said, I don't, I don't know. How, what do you mean? And they said, well, I mean 500 years. I said, what? I said, we must have a bad connection here. I thought you said 500 years. They said, no, we really did say 500 years. And it turns out you can tell the age of most clams fairly precisely, because if you slice their shell in half and you polish the shell and then you etch it, then there are growth rings in the shell, rings like trees that you can count very precisely. You can say, ah, this line here in the shell, that's 1935. And this one here is 1815. And so we know that this particular longest live clam that we know about, Ming, they called it, Ming the mollusk, was born in 1499, 60, 65 years before the birth of Shakespeare. And it died in 2006 when the daughter of a researcher opened it up, scooped out its insides and threw it over the side of the boat because nobody had a clue how old it was. It was just in a pile of clams that they dug up from the bottom of the ocean. So we started working on these clams. Now, 
okay, you have this long-lived organism. What are you going to study? Where do you start? One of the things that I started thinking about, what does a clam have to do to live for 500 years? And I thought, one thing it better do pretty darn well is open and close its shell when it needs to. And there's a big muscle. In fact, if you eat scallops, you're eating that muscle from a different kind of clam. That muscle is the one that opens and closes the shell. So I said, we ought to look at that muscle and see how it can last so long. How can a muscle last 500 years? And also it turns out that these clams have a heart. They have a beating heart. So also there's a heart in there that's lasted 500 years. How do they do that? So we started studying them. And one of the things that we noticed right away is one of the things that happens as we get older is we're living with more and more damage proteins in our body. And proteins run all the chemical reactions of our body. And that's what our genes do is they produce proteins. I thought, how do they maintain those proteins? Now, proteins to do their proper chemical job have to be folded very precisely. It makes origami look look trivial by comparison. And what happens over time is those proteins get bashed around and they get damaged. And sometimes they get degraded by the cell and then they, their parts get recycled. But sometimes they don't. They escape that. And when they get damaged, they tend to get sticky. And when they get sticky, they clump together. And when they clump together, then they cause a problem. And in fact, most of our neurological diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease are caused by these clumps, but also some kinds of muscular dystrophy. We think that this misfolded protein clumps are probably one of the main causes of aging. So when we started thinking about this, we said, I wonder if the clams have any special way of preventing proteins from sticking together and forming these clumps. So we started doing some experiments and found out, yeah, they do. Uh, If we try to stress some proteins that came from a clam in some clam juice, something we've squeezed out of their cells, it absolutely refuses to clump together. At that point, we thought it might be something special about the proteins, or it might be something special about the juice that makes the proteins resist uh, aggregate. And so finally, what we did is we took the Alzheimer's. So we took human Mm. proteins. So what happens, instead of using clam proteins, we took human proteins. So we got at the protein that seems to be at the base of Alzheimer's disease called A-beta. And we put a nice little chemical tag on it so we could watch it. And then we tried to misfold it. And we tried it in the juice of several kinds of clam and and in uh, mouse juice from mouse muscle and also from human muscle. And it turned out that it was only the 500-year-old clam juice that prevented that from aggregating. So I thought, aha, there's something in here. Now, this would be hot, right? This is potentially therapy to prevent Alzheimer's disease if this translates at all. Now, we've spent the last seven years now working on trying to figure out what that is. And we've been extremely successful at identifying what it isn't. But we haven't yet discovered a a former graduate student of mine who's now at Harvard has been working on this. And I think he's making some progress. So I don't have anything concrete to tell you now, unless you want to know what it isn't, which is not very interesting. But hopefully within the next few years, we'll have some idea. And this is just the kind of thing, the kind of discovery that can come out of looking at these animals that people typically ignore, right? We've probably all eaten this species of clam. 
without knowing it. This is absolutely fascinating, Stephen, and it's very, also very encouraging. Diseases such as Alzheimer's along, I had the pleasure to have, you may be familiar with his name, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Oh, yes. The guest on the podcast as well. And there is so much we don't know yet and looking into nature to help us heal some of the most difficult ailments that we're currently dealing with. Of course, the individuals afflicted with it, but then also all of the loved ones and the societal toll it takes, as well as the economic toll. So the benefits are, you can't even put a price tag on these benefits. And when we see such long-lived animals, whether it's an organism such as the clams that you have been studying, or whether it's Mammals, of course, the question comes up, and with, which you have also mentioned, is how can we somehow emulate this? And you, I think if I have researched this correctly, you think, or that, that was your thought in the past, at least, that we humans have a limit of around 120 years. Do you believe we have the possibility, as science advances, to potentially achieve what what we call the extreme lifespan extension? I don't believe that. So let me just clarify. You're at, you described very well. My thoughts is for humans as we're now constructed, that living 120 or 130 years is probably as long as it's possible. And I don't think that's because there's any kind of death switch that goes on. I think it's just that we reach a stage of frailty, any small disturbance knocks us. But I don't think that means that we're stuck with that because we can change our biology. Now, I don't think that we're likely to live 500 years or a thousand years or become immortal only because we have not succeeded in doing anything like that in any of our very simple animal models of aging. What we seem to be able to do in a number of ways, either by tweaking their genes or tweaking their diet or tricking their environment, is make animals live 20 to 30% longer. We can do that in dozens of ways in, in, in various animals. So to me, that means we ought to be able to find ways to tweak our own health and longevity by 20 to 30%. So instead of having a life expectancy of 80 years, maybe we have a life expectancy of 100 years and an occasional person that lives 140 or 150 years. That seems to me quite within the grasp of what we know now. Mm -hmm. Now, something could happen tomorrow. If somebody tomorrow showed me a mouse that, that lived 20 years instead of two years, then I'd say, oh, maybe I was wrong. If you're in science, it's a very humbling thing. I have been wrong in many things over my career. So I would be perfectly happy to admit, oh yeah, you figured out how to make that mouse live 20 years. Then that opens up all kinds of new possibilities as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm being too pessimistic. I'm just saying, show me the evidence. Scientists by temperament and training tend to be skeptics. They will show me the evidence and I'll be happy to change my mind and I, I hope I, I stay like that. I hope I never feel like I know it all because in reality, we never do know it all. Absolutely, Stephen. And that makes total sense from the paradigm of what we know now. Your estimate is perfectly plausible also to me. 
What are your thoughts on some of the predictions that people such as Dr. David Sinclair make where the lifespan, I think he officially also says it's something in the realm of what you've mentioned now, 150 or so, but if I am correct in the past, he's also mentioned that potentially 500 is not out of reach. And he's actually working with uh, mice, mouse models, mainly if I... Yeah, he is. My, as I said, if he shows me a 20-year-old mouse, I'll be happy. Yeah, 15-year-old mouse, I'll be happy. He's, David's a good friend and he's a very optimistic guy. And I think this is just exuberance that he's saying. And I'm not quite as exuberant as he is. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we need a lot of brilliant minds such as yours and a lot of different voices in this ongoing, not only discussion, but developments. You've mentioned it before, the lifespan of the average American in the last century increased, I believe, from late 40s to about 75. That was in the last century. And in general, the lifespan is increasing. There was some news just recently, and it was focused on the last uh, two or three years that showed that American lifespan compared to other Western nations actually decreased in the last few years. In comparison, uh, do you have any idea why that could be? Oh, yeah. But if you think of lifespan, lifespan is, in essence, an average of the age at which people die. And we know that certain things have happened recently. There have been an increasing number of deaths by overdose and suicide, and those tend to be young people, and those have a big effect on life expectancy because people are very far from the average. And then there was COVID. Diseases of despair, as they've been called, had a very tiny effect on lifespan. Instead of continuing to increase, it went down by a tenth of a year and then another tenth of a year. But then COVID came along, and COVID was killing older people very preferentially. And now it's dropped by almost three years. Now, I don't think this is any kind of long-term trend. Pre-COVID, people, the older people were not having their life expectancy declining. It was the population as a whole. So I see no reason that it can't keep climbing, at least for a while, at least till we reach where Japan is now. Japan, life expectancy is something like a, approaching 86 years and 88 years in women and 84 years in men, something like that. And it has continued to do that. Now, there's no reason in the world for me to think that ultimately we won't be able to do that unless we're just prevented by our own self-indulgence. We have problems of obesity here that they don't have in Japan. We have, it's mostly lifestyle factors. And what people tend to forget is lifestyle factors are enormously important. They can add a decade, more than a decade of healthy life to anyone. We tend to get seduced by the visions of all these tremendous, sophisticated scientific breakthroughs. But if we simply did what everybody knows is good health behaviors, then we could all expect to live pretty much a, a, a long, healthy life by today's standards. I, I think of a study that was done a few years ago called the Diabetes Prevention Study. And what it did is it took a bunch of people with diabetes and it gave some of them metformin, which is a number one treatment for type 2 diabetes. 
And another group of them had just said, okay, we're going to convert you to a healthy lifestyle. And they changed their diet. They changed their exercise at all. They both made the people in the studies live longer and stay healthy longer. The lifestyle effect, though, was slightly bigger than the drug effect. So I think that there's a message there. There's a message which is we already know how to stay healthy longer if we will simply do simple stuff. Don't overeat, don't smoke, stay physically and mentally active. The stuff that your mother probably told you. Yes, absolutely, Stephen. And I think it's really, really important what you just mentioned actually twice. You talked about adding, let's say, 10 healthy years to your life. So it's not just about extending your lifespan, but also your health span. And these just very normal, makes total sense uh, changes that we can apply to our lives can have a huge impact. So you mentioned metformin. I have a question for you. So let's say you're somebody who's already doing all the good stuff, the nutrition, the sleep, the movement, and, and other good lifestyle choices. Would adding something like metformin on top of that amplify the results even more? Or that's, would a that very, that's a very good question. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know because we don't know because, first of all, human experiments are very difficult to do. What you'd want to do is you'd want to do a controlled experiment where you took a group of people, you randomly assigned half of them to keep doing whatever they're doing, healthy people, because we know metformin, if you're diabetic, has all kinds of benefits, but healthy people and another group that are just as healthy, but they're taking metformin. And we just don't know. It's an intriguing question because it's quite possible for drugs to be very beneficial for people that have certain health problems, but not to be at all beneficial for people that don't have those problems. But it's also problem, also possible that perhaps this is something that addresses some fundamental part of aging that we didn't know about. And this will increase our health by another few years. We just don't know. We'd like to know, but it's very hard not just to get people to do it, but even to get permission. Because the hardest thing to, in doing human research is to get permission to give anything to healthy people. It's just people don't, because if there's the tiniest side effect, and almost every drug has some sort of tiny side effect, then people will not allow you to do it. The metformin study that Dr. Nir Barsala has been trying to get funded for the past five or six years is really to look at the effect on older people that have that already have one serious disease and see if it can prevent them from getting any more serious diseases. And I think that'd be a very valuable study to do, but it won't answer the question that you ask, which I think is the key question, which is, if you're already healthy, what can we do to enhance and prolong that health? Yes. I actually have uh, friends in the health and wellness and biohacker circles that are part of my network that are very healthy individuals. They do take metformin. I'm curious to see how they will quantify this, maybe a few years down the road by taking certain tests or such. Are you familiar with the supplement berberin? No, that's one I have not heard of yet. Um, I wish I would have prepared, prepared this particular aspect of uh, the conversation better, but berberin, B-R-B-E-R-I-N-E, is something that is recommended to people who would like similar effects as metformin provides, but for whichever reason are not comfortable 
with metformin. So it's actually something I wanted to look into a little bit deeper as well. Maybe something interesting for you to have a look yeah, at. Yeah, is that an S SGLT2 inhibitor? Do you know? Is that the, because there's a whole class of drugs. Is it a drug or is it a natural product? It's a natural product as far as okay, I Okay, so that's not what I'm thinking about. Yeah, all of this stuff is interesting. And the thing is, how do we determine whether it's healthy for humans or whether it's, even if it's slightly unhealthy, we want to know that too, right? right. Because metformin, people are t taking it because they think the evidence warrants it and good for them. Same with rapamycin, another one that has remarkable effects in mice, absolutely remarkable effects in mice. Must it do the same thing in humans? We don't know. There are a bunch of people who are informally taking it and good on them. We'll see that the trouble is with interpreting these results is people who are doing these things are not the average people. They're like the people that you used to find starving themselves because of the dietary restriction results in rats and mice. That is, who do you compare them to? Because the people that can eat 25 or 30% less than they'd like to for month after year, what kind of health habits did they have before they started doing that? And then what kind of health habits? They're not your average people, right? The people that are taking metformin now and rapamycin now, they are people that are fixated on their own health. And they're probably going to much longer than normal people, whether or not they were taking these. So it's a tough thing to know how to in interpret these. I Absolutely. think if 50 years from now, there's a group of people that looks great and still healthy that have been taking rapamycin since the year 2000, that'll be pretty conclusive. We'll just have to wait and see. Yes. And you, you just brought it up, of course, people who practice caloric restriction. This is also something you have talked quite a bit about. I gathered from what I read about your take on this, that you're a little less optimistic about caloric restriction than are others. However, you do believe, I think that fasting is can be a good idea. But that's, of course, a difference between fasting and caloric restriction, because you can still fast and eat as many nutrients and calories as before versus just restricting your uh, calories. Can you go a little bit into that first? Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right in, in, in what you say. The thing about calorie restriction is that it, it definitely works in laboratory animals and a number of species of laboratory animals. It keeps them healthy longer. The question is, and the way it's done is that the animals are fed, they don't have any choice about it. We feed them 40% less than they want to eat. The thing about doing that in people is that people can't do it. The, the number There are people who can, but that's a vanishingly small fraction of all the people. And there have been good studies now. One of the, one of the best studies is a study of, of people that were calorically restricted for two years. And they tried to restrict them 25%. That's really what they wanted to do. And they ended up restricting themselves by 12%. And these are people that are being paid to be in a study and they're motivated. The other thing about caloric restriction is we don't really know how to translate the mouse rat caloric restriction to human studies. And I'll explain what I mean. So the normal life of a mouse or rat, they live in a shoebox size cage their entire life. They have very little opportunity to, to do anything, to move around. And as a consequence, even what we think of as a healthy body weight for a laboratory mouse or rat 
would be obese if they were a wild mouse or a, or a wild rat. So the question is, uh, are we simply reducing obesity, which everybody would agree that's going to be a good thing for health, or are we taking animals that are at already a healthy weight and reduce it to a very thin? There were even two monkey studies done on this, and they couldn't even agree on which. And one of them was feeding the animals all they wanted and restricting from there, and they found a big effect. And the other one was trying to make their animals a healthy body weight and then restrict from there. And they had pretty much they had no effect on longevity. Again, those are just two different ideas of what the how to interpret the rodent stuff. Nobody would argue that reducing obesity isn't healthy now. But here's the interesting thing that's just occurred the last few, the last decade, people have started to focus. So when I do an experiment like this in my lab and I go through and I give them the daily food allotment, the ones that are restricted, they're hanging on the cage. They're waiting for me. As soon as they hear the door to the room open, they are right there and they eat all their food and nothing flat. Animals that have all the food they want to eat nibble. And so what somebody realized is that, wait a second, what we're doing here is we're really doing about a 23-hour fast every day. We're also reducing the calories, but we're also giving them a fast. So what would happen if we fasted them, but let them eat all they wanted? And this is where the now this has turned into time-restricted feeding, periodic fasting. The thing about that is people can do that. What we know is within about eight hours, our body we haven't eaten anything, our body changes its physiology and goes into this fasting physiology. And part of this fasting physiology is that it wakes up all kinds of protective mechanisms in our bodies. So it may be that these short-term fasts that everybody can do are going to turn out to be healthful. It's too early to know the human story yet. There's a lot of this work going on. But if that turns out to be the case, then that's extremely good news because virtually anybody can say, oh, I'm only going to eat between nine in the morning and six at night and not eat outside that window. Yes. And if that turns out to be really a healthful uh, lifestyle, then there will be some people that adopt it. And just we've been hearing, don't be obese for how many years? And some people are still doing it. That means at least within the grasp of everyone, would be a treatment prolong their health substantially. We'll have to wait and see. I, I'm pretty excited about that because uh, I think it offers a ray of hope in an area where I thought there wasn't. 100%. And as you just said, it would be accessible for everyone, especially financially. Now, talking about some interventions that do have come with a price tag, I'd love mm -hmm. to hear your take about but things like antioxidant protocols or hormone therapy, particularly bioidentical hormone replacement with regards to slowing the aging process down? Yeah, I think possibly. I, I don't. People have been focused on hormones for a good century in aging biology and hasn't really gone anywhere. In fact, I even wrote, I hope you haven't read my why we age anytime recently. One of the one of the things I'm most embarrassed about writing in there, I said if estrogen were had a fancy name and came from an exotic tropical root, it would be a, considered a miracle of anti-aging. And then right after that, the Women's Health Initiative came out showing that hormone replacement therapy, in fact, had a lot of damaging uh, side effects. That wasn't the end of the story there. That's a complicated story, right? But 
so far hormone replacement has not turned out to be any kind of magic bullet because if you think about it pretty much all hormones decline with age not all but most all what if that were actually the body's way of protecting itself what if having high levels of testosterone if you had a lot of latent cancers in your body maybe that would wake them up same with growth hormone so there's at least it plausible to me there's a good reason that your body tamps down your hormones as you get older in which case it would be a very different thing now to think about hormone replacement uh bioidentical or not so it's an interesting area i'm just i'm very much i'm very hesitant to feel too confident about it because it's been such a disappointment in the past and how about in in your what so everything that you're exposed to and everything that you see is there anything that you would think this looks really promising as far as interventions go so not just in theory but there there is some practical knowledge and evidence behind it and, you, and yeah the stem cells or gene therapy or such the, uh, the, well the thing that i most optimistic about right now is much less high tech than those mm -hmm. so there are all these studies that find that if you connect the circulatory system of a young animal and an old animal the old animal is rejuvenated in, in a number of ways and there's now a recent study that shows you don't even need the young animal if you just dilute out the blood of the old animal replace it with a blood substitute you also get the same thing it may be so suggesting that as we get older there's a build up of toxic things in our blood or alternatively there's some magical thing in young blood but either of those possibilities strikes me as quite reasonable i particularly like the idea of uh, old blood because cells are dying in our bodies all the time for one reason or another, some, some stress or another and as they break open they're releasing all kinds of their contents into our organs and then they end up in our blood and our blood can get rid of some of them but probably not all of them so the fact that if you replace that or you somehow found a way to filter out those toxins. That strikes me as something that's pretty reasonable. And then it would certainly be accessible because, of course, we do transfusions all the time, right? To me, that, that's, a, that's closer than something like cell reprogramming or any of the other higher tech stem cell research. Stem cells, eventually, I think there's going to be very good things for treating diseases from stem cells. I think in terms of macular degeneration and Parkinson's disease and diabetes and all. In terms of preserving youth, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I like the blood. I like the young blood, the blood transfusion thing, because it just, it just seems to have this most solid logic. And it doesn't seem to do a great deal of violence to our fundamental biology, just replacing this circulating fluid, changing our oil, basically. Yeah. It's really interesting, of course, that what immediately that can bring to mind is the vampire myths. And <laughs> yeah, it's I true. Have, yeah, I have read that allegedly uh, individuals such as Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Seal allegedly has engaged with this. And so, of course, if you want to spin this into a dystopian kind of world, you would have all these super rich people who would hold captive all these very young and healthy people just to right. 
God. So that being said, and painting this dystopian picture, how could something like this, first of all, become accessible to a, a, a broader amount of people? So ideally to the entire human family. And then is there something else that could be used instead of blood from another human? Good questions. Good questions. I think it actually could be easily ex extended. There are a lot of people under 25, a lot of people. If you take, take some of their blood, they replace it very quickly. So I, in fact, I tell oh. my students that I gave plasma when I was a graduate student and I got paid a very small amount of money for it. You guys are sitting on lots and lots of money. This is a business enterprise. I've heard the same rumors about Peter Thiel and others, and I don't know if they're true or other. I know there are companies that are, will do this uh, for a price, but it does seem to me that something, at least in principle, maybe people put their way, may pay their way through college by donating blood every few months. And older people are benefiting from that. It doesn't have to be a dystopian scenario. It's like the dystopian scenario is interesting, but it needn't be this way. It's going to be a simple business transaction. Doug right. fellow there, you need the money to get through college. Turns out I happen to have the money. Let's make a deal. I, I give you something and you give me that, that pristine young blood that you have. Absolutely. And I'll also pay for your bills so you eat good organic foods, so you have access to yep. a good living environment and a gym. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Everybody could win. Yeah, that's a very intriguing idea to me. You know, right now, apparently, to get one of these transfusions costs about $8,000. It, it needn't. It needn't. It puts New a blood is being made by, by young bodies all the time. So it puts a completely different spin on uh, the terms that are known as uh, sh uh, sugar daddy or sugar mommy. Maybe in the <laughs> we, become, we become blood mommies and blood daddies and take yeah. care so they can take yeah. care. We're connected by blood. What could be bad about that? Exactly. And speaking about something in the future that hasn't quite transpired yet, your bet with Jay Chomsky. Uh -huh. He's a University of Illinois at Chicago professor of public health. And uh, is that still on? And that, if so, has your prediction slightly changed or is it exactly the same? No, the bet is still on. It's this should be worth about a billion dollars in twenty one fifty when I finally win the bet. I am as optimistic as ever for this reason. So the oldest person, so your listeners in on the bet. It's a per the first person limit to be one hundred and fifty years old is alive today. In fact, was born in the twenty first century. It only has to be one person that lives to one hundred and fifty years old. If that person does. Then Jay and I put some money in an investment account in the year 2001, and it's accumulating interest. And at some point in the future, if there's ever confirmed 150-year-old, then my relatives, my descendants are in the best case scenario. I get all the accumulated money. And if not, then his descendants get all the accumulated money. The oldest person to ever live was Jean Camus, who died in 1997 at 122. And nobody has approached this since. Nobody has even reached 120 since this. And Jay takes great comfort in that. I take great comfort in the fact that we're piling up more and more 100-year-olds all the time. And we're also piling up more and more ways to keep people healthy longer, to keep animals healthy longer. And some of that might translate. And one thing that has happened in the last few years is that we've discovered that a lot of these treatments that keep animals healthy longer 
can be started when the animals are relatively old already. There was a rapamycin study that came out of the University of Washington that started animals on rapamycin when they were the mouse equivalent of 70 years old. They lived about twice as long as the 70-year-olds that weren't. Now, if you had told me this 10 years ago, that you could give anything to an animal that was that advanced as age and still have a big impact on how long it lived, I would have told you you're crazy. One of the many things that I've been wrong about in the past. I think that it's not at all unlikely that there's somebody, probably you know, somebody that's maybe 20 or 30 years old now, that 30 years from now, when they've had their number of their transfusions and maybe had their stem cells re-energized and their, some of their other cells partially reprogrammed, that yeah, I, we'll see. It's a lot of fun to think about it. And every time that Olshansky and I get together, we give each other some grief about, are you ready to concede now? And neither of us is. <laughs> Wonderful. I will follow this. Of course, I'm really, I, I love bets. And this is a bet, um, especially if you are correct, which I'm, of course, rooting for, will have uh, we can't even fathom the effects this will have on us as humanity. Now, that being said, and we've talked about quite a few things, and including the metformin, the rapamycin, all lifestyle interventions, I'd like to learn from you if there's anything you could share with us, a practice that could be something new or something you've been doing for a long time in your life that has elevated your human experience mentally, physically, and or spiritually. I think the thing that has been best for my mental and physical health is exercise. I'm a gym rat and I like to lift weights. I like to bicycle. I like to do a lot of stuff and I find it to be incredibly relaxing. I, and I don't sleep well unless I get my fair share of exercise. Unlike a lot of my colleagues in the field, I don't take any supplements. I don't do anything except I try to lead a sensible lifestyle and I try to get uh, plenty of physical activity uh, each day. For, and the other part of that, though, is, is where you get your physical activity. I, I am in nature. I like I get reinvigorated by being out in the among the forests and the mountains in the ocean. I like to scuba dive because just being around the profusion of life that's out there. It's just incredibly invigorating. Oh, absolutely outstanding. Thank you for sharing that, Stephen. And for people who'd like to learn more about you, about your work, or maybe even reach out to you, how can they do that? They could, they could, my email is austad, my last name, at uab.edu. That's University of Alabama, Birmingham, edu. Or they can uh, leave me a message at my website, which is this, uh, stephenaustad.com. Fantastic. I'll make sure to also include this in the show notes. Stephen, thank you so much for this really interesting and illuminating conversation. I'm most grateful you joined us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You asked excellent questions and it was enjoyable to talk with you. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanize.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.